So I need an adjective. We'll go this group right here, an adjective. No? Okay, how about this group right here? Wait, what? Chunky? All right, chunky. Probably wasn't the first thing I was thinking. All right, uh, noun. I don't know what you said. Talk at the same time so I can all hear you. Dog, I heard dog. Common theme right there, last service too, dog. This group right over here, an adjective. Beautiful? All right. Plural noun, over here. Over here, plural, plural noun. Pests? Cats, okay, cats. All right, right here, we got dogs, we got cats. Adverb right here, a word that ends like L-Y. Quickly, okay. All right, over here, a verb ending in I-N-G. Laughing. All right. Silly word, plural. What? Burp? Like burps? Burps? Okay. Last service was bikinis, so. I don't know. Uh, This group, adjective. All right, this group, adjective. Smelly. Plural noun. We already have cats. We got plenty of cats already. All right, right here. Plural noun. Cheeseburgers. All right, first name. Jacob. Oh, that's biblical. All right, adjective. What? Shiny. All right. That's... Great. All right. Number? Four. Four or five. All right. Another first name? Uh, Becky. All right. Another first name? Jeez, why do you got to throw my name in the mix? Right here? Deborah. You don't know what you're getting into there. Another first name? Jeff. Thank you. Another first name. What? Lowell. All right. And then I heard Maria. Someone really wants Maria down here. Is that your name? Maria? All right. And the last one, plural noun. Make it count. Broncos. Broncos? Oh, Broncos. Is that like a... I thought you said Roscoe's, like Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles. Well, I know that you all are a batch of smart cookies, really intelligent human beings we have before us here today. Uh, So what better way to test your intelligence than by a practice with Mad Libs, all right? So this is what you told me about our solar system. When we look up into the sky on a chunky summer night, we see millions of tiny spots of light. Each one represents a dog, which is the center of a beautiful solar system with dozens of cats. 
revolving quickly around a distant sun. Sometimes these suns expand and begin laughing their neighbors. Soon they will become so big they will turn into burps. Eventually, they subside and become smelly giants or perhaps black cheeseburgers. (laughs) Our own planet, which we call Jacob, circles around our shiny sun four times every year. There are eight other planets in our solar system. They are named Becky, Jeremy, Deborah, Jeff, Lowell, Maria, Jupiter, and Mars. Scientists who study these planets are called Broncos. Well, I don't get it at all. I do not get it one bit. Well, that's the name of our brand new sermon series that we're starting today. I don't get it. You know, sometimes when it comes to God and the Bible and the Christian life, sometimes I just don't get it. Sometimes God seems like a, what can I use here? A cat revolving around a distant sun. Sometimes the Bible reads like a book of Mad Libs. And sometimes the Christian life seems like smelly giants or perhaps black cheeseburgers. Sometimes I don't get it. And I wonder why, like what prevents us from getting it. I've really racked my brain about this and have been thinking about why don't we get it? And I've kind of boiled it down to two separate categories. It may have to do with external factors and also internal factors that prevent us from getting it. Well, external complexity. Maybe the subject matter is a lot to take in. Maybe it's complicated or maybe it's just new and unfamiliar, different and unusual. Or maybe it has to do with some internal factors that prevent us from getting it. Maybe I'm just being really lazy and I'm not putting the time in. Maybe I just want a quick answer, a quick solution without really working hard at it. Or maybe I'm just being apathetic. I'm being indifferent instead of passionate. Well, these may have to do with us not getting it. Maybe some of these factor into our decision-making or our understanding where we just don't get it. But can we promise each other something? Oh, someone, uh, one of the band members, their phone is going off real quick. Let me see. I don't think this is your phone, Will. Oh, it is your phone. Should I pick it up? Hey, this is your sugar daddy. Don't worry, it was hung up, it was hung up, it's all good. And for the record, I do not answer the phone that way when my wife calls or anybody. So, anyways, why don't we get it sometimes? You know, there's all these different reasons. But as we move forward with this sermon series, can we promise each other something? Can we promise each other that when we come to an I don't get it, that it will become a starting point instead of an ending. That instead of saying, I don't get it, so I give up. I'm done, I quit. Instead of saying that, why don't we say, I don't get it, at least not yet. At least not yet. Well, we've picked a, a wonderful verse for this sermon series to be our memory verse. And so if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. 
as we read from this verse, it's almost smack dab in the middle of Psalm 119. It's verse 73. And let's read this together nice and loud. Psalm 119, 73. Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. And God, that's what we desire. We desire to know you in a deep way that changes us and transforms us. Lord, we come to you today with open hearts. Some of us might be feeling broken today. Some of us might be feeling uplifted and joyful today. Some of us may feel rotten with sin today. Some of us feel like maybe, maybe they're doing okay. But Lord, meet us individually where we are and speak to us in a bold way. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Well, I just want to say welcome and congratulations. I am delighted that you could be here today. I say congratulations because getting here wasn't easy, I know. In fact, I suspect that getting here was a little bit tougher than you thought. To begin with, in order for you to be here now, trillions of drifting atoms had to somehow assemble in an intricate and particular manner to create you. It's an arrangement so particular and so specialized that it has never existed before, and it will only exist this once. Furthermore, it may not have been easy, but each one of your forebears on both sides has been attractive enough to find a mate, healthy enough to reproduce, and, of course, blessed in order to live long enough to do so. Not one of your pertinent ancestors was squashed, devoured, drowned, stranded, stuck fast, starved, untimely wounded, or otherwise deflected from its life's quest of delivering a tiny charge of genetic material to the right person at the right time to perpetuate the only sequence of hereditary combinations that could eventually, astoundingly, and miraculously result in you. So if you're still feeling rather unimportant today, do you realize that it took two people, your parents, to get you here? Don't think about that too hard. That's gross, right? <laughs> but it took two people to get you here. Let's go back a little bit further. Each of your parents had two parents. So in the generation just before your mother and father, there were four people whose pairing off and sharing love contributed to your existence. Well, let's go back even further to those great-grandparents. You are the product of eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, 32 great-great-great-grandparents. Well, let's go through the math a little bit even further. If you keep on multiplying that number by two, and if you figure an average of about 25 years between each generation, you'll discover that a mere 500 years ago, there were 1,048,576 people on this planet beginning the production of you. 
You are a biological miracle. A biological miracle. You are an event with odds against so astronomical, they are pretty much impossible. Like oxygen spontaneously becoming gold. You are an oxygen spontaneously becoming gold miracle. And somebody made that miracle. Now, I don't mean your parents on that magical night way back when, gross. (laughs) Somebody made you. Somebody made that oxygen spontaneously becoming gold miracle. Even more so, he made oxygen, and he made gold, and he made spontaneity, not to mention time and space and life itself. God spoke to nothing, and nothing heard it and became something. Chaos heard it and became order. Darkness heard it and became light. And nobody said a word because there was nobody there to say a word. So God himself said, that's good. But who is this God? Who is this God who spoke to nothing and nothing heard it and became something? Who is this God who spoke and chaos heard it and became order? Who is this God who spoke and darkness heard it and became light? That's the question that we're going to explore this morning. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. or You can follow along on those green pieces of paper that you received when you walked in today. We're going to go to the prophetic book of Isaiah as he reveals to us just a few of the innumerable attributes of God. This is how it begins in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the palm of a hand? Well, there are more than 326 million trillion gallons of water on earth, not to mention 37.5 million billion gallons contained within earth's atmosphere. So it's to say that's quite a palm. Who has measured the waters in the palm of a hand or gauged the heavens with a ruler or scooped the earth's dust up in a measuring cup or weighed the mountains on a scale and the hills in a balance? The implied answer is, uh, no one. No one but God. God is big. In the 1993 blockbuster film, The Sandlot, Scotty Smalls loses his stepdad's autographed Babe Ruth baseball to a giant English mastiff named The Beast. And now Smalls doesn't realize that this is a big deal. He doesn't understand it. He says, well, what's the big deal? Baby Ruth, who was she anyways? And his friends, they stand there in jaw-dropped astonishment. And it takes them a couple minutes to regain consciousness. And they begin to inform Smalls on who Babe Ruth is. The Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash, the Colossus of Clout, the Colossus of Clout, the Great Bambino. People used to say that Babe Ruth was less than a god but more than a man. Well, that's certainly true. He's far less than a God. 
Because God is not a, a mere sultan of swat or king of crash. He's the colossal creator, the one who established and upholds the physical universe with precise proportions. But who taught God? Who gave God the manual? Who gave God the blueprints for building a universe that houses gigantic galaxies and incredibly microscopic subatomic particles like quarks? Who? Well, that's the way Isaiah continues here in verse 13. Who directed the Lord's spirit and acted as God's advisor? Whom did he consult for enlightenment? Who taught him the path of justice and knowledge and explained to him the way of understanding? The implied answer is, uh, no one. No one but God. God is not only the colossal creator, he is the writer of reason. Now, when we read the Bible, it's really important that we understand it or try our best to understand it in the original context which it was intended. We have to put ourselves in the shoes of those people, those first listeners, the audience to which it was written. Well, when we think about this text in Isaiah 40, we realize that this was written to people in a war-weary world people who were enduring a Babylonian captivity. They were uprooted from their land in Israel and transported against their will across the Fertile Crescent into modern-day Iraq, what was called back then Babylon. So here they are in a strange and foreign land, surrounded by strange and foreign people who worshipped many gods. They were what was called polytheistic, having many gods, one of whom was named Marduk. He's actually the top god of the Babylonian pantheon. He was a creator god, a sun god, and was worshipped in this way in Babylonian mythology. Well, Marduk, in all his power and all his brightness as his creator god, as his sun god, he had to phone a friend sometimes. He had to phone a friend. He had to call up Nabu, the god of wisdom, for his wisdom. But as Isaiah shares here in chapter 40, that's not our God. That's not the one true God. Our God doesn't have to phone a friend. He doesn't need to ask the audience or use a 50-50 lifeline. Our God is the writer of reason. He's the writer of reason. So who is God? God is the colossal creator. God is the writer of reason. Well, let's continue on now in verse 15. Look, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and valued as dust on a scale. Look, God weighs the islands like fine dust. Lebanon doesn't have enough fuel. Its animals aren't enough for an entirely burned offering. All the nations are like nothing before God. They are viewed as less than nothing and emptiness. God is the one who is worthy. This statement here in verse 16 that Lebanon doesn't have enough fuel, that's not talking about crude oil prices or gas shortages. It's talking about trees. Trees, what? What are you talking about, trees? Well, it's about the cedars of Lebanon. Let's take a look at the cedars of Lebanon. The mountains of Lebanon were once shaded by thick cedar forests whose timber was exploited by the Phoenicians, the Israelites, the Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Romans, and Turks. 
So remember, there was this huge, dense forest full of trees. So imagine if we were to completely fell the forest, completely cut down every tree, deforest it, and then replant it, and then deforest it, and replant it again and again and again and again and again and again, and then again and again and again and again and again and again and again, and then again, all those trees averaging 50 to 100 feet tall could not supply enough wood for an adequate sacrifice to God. Why? Because God is worthy. Oh, how we prop ourselves up in our self-absorbed, self-seeking, self-glorification. Look at me. I'm the American Idol. I am the Slovak superstar. I am the Himalayan hotshot. Now, even as individuals together, collectively, as a nation, this is what God says about the nations through the prophet Isaiah, verse 17. All the nations are like nothing before God. They are viewed as less than nothing, and it says in Hebrew, tohu. They are less than tohu, which is what we would translate as empty or void or nothing. So even at their greatest extent, all the firepower, all the nuclear technology, all the drones, all the high-powered explosives of all the nations are laughably less than tohu, laughably less than nothing, emptiness before God. So who is God? God is the colossal creator. God is the writer of reason. God is the one who is worthy. Now, Isaiah is just getting started, so get ready. Verse 18. So to whom will you equate God? To what likeness will you compare him? An idol? A craftsman pours it. A metal worker covers it with gold and fashions silver chains. The one who sets up an image chooses wood that won't rot and then seeks a skilled artisan to set up an idol that won't move. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? Wasn't it announced to you from the beginning? Haven't you understood since the earth was founded? God inhabits the earth's horizon. Its inhabitants are like locusts. God stretches out the skies like a curtain and spreads it out like a tent for dwelling. God makes dignitaries useless and the earth's judges into nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely is their shoot rooted in the earth. When God breathes on them and they dry up, the windstorm carries them off like straw. So to whom will you compare me? And who is my equal, says the Holy One. God is the one and only incomparable king. I met a king once, a king who almost lost his crown in the middle of his reign. You know, they only give it to you for four years, maybe eight years max. When I met this king, he was a former king. He had already served his time. His reign was over. I met this former king in Washington, D.C. at Union Station. And there we were, we were sitting down enjoying our lunch when all of a sudden a, like a fog bank of people just drifted in. There was a buzz in the air. And then we saw the Secret Service agents 
surrounding like locusts, their heads like impact sprinklers, darting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then I saw the king, tall and white-haired, body thin and sunken in. And then as I met Mr. Bill Clinton, I thought to myself as I shook his hand, you're a lot like everybody else, a whole lot like everybody else. In fact, you look like all those guys on the Celebrex commercial. You know, the pharmaceutical drug ad commercials look just like all of them. And in fact, you are comparable to every other president. You are comparable to every other politician. You are comparable to every other human being. In fact, you might even be outmatched or inferior to some. But God is not. God is the one and only incomparable king. So who is God? God is the colossal creator. God is the writer of reason. He is the one who is worthy, the one and only incomparable king. And Isaiah continues now in verse 26. Look up at the sky and consider who created these the one who brings out their attendants one by one, summoning each of them by name because of God's great strength and mighty power, not one is missing. God is the orderly overseer. In our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, there are well over 100 billion planets revolving around over 100,000 million suns. Step outside of our galaxy, there are millions upon millions more galaxies, like the Whirlpool Galaxy, the Sombrero Galaxy, and even the Black Eye Galaxy. No joke. But God knows each star, each planet, each planetary mass's name. And of course he does, because he put them, he placed them and designed them to be. So who is God? God is the colossal creator. God is the writer of reason. God is the one who is worthy. God is the one and only incomparable king. God is the orderly overseer. God is the one who works on the cosmic scale, high and lofty, above all, transcendent. And yet, he's involved and close and near. As the text continues, we see this. Verse 27, why do you say, Jacob, and declare, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My God ignores my predicament. And isn't that how it feels? Doesn't that feel like that sometimes? Like, God, where are you? I mean, look at our world. It's full of division. It's full of hardship. It's full of pain and destruction. Where are you, God? I could really use your help right now. It's the same situation with the Israelites back then. Enduring exile in this Babylonian captivity. Where are you, God? Maybe that's what life is like right now. Like a period of exile where it feels like God is MIA. 
Like God is on an overly time-consuming coffee break. He should be back by now, right? Where are you, God? Maybe it feels like God is dead or God is powerless or that he couldn't care less. But don't you know, haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow tired or weary. His understanding is beyond human reach, giving power to the tired and reviving the exhausted. Youths will become tired and weary. Young men will certainly stumble, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will fly up on wings like eagles. They will run and not be tired. They will walk not be weary. God is not dead. God is not powerless. God couldn't be more involved. God is the one who is intimately involved. God is the one who sees and hears and knows. God is the one who sees your hardship. He sees your pain. He sees the injustice. He sees the agony. He hears the cries from your heart, the ones that you can verbalize and put into words. I'm sick and tired of this. I'm hurting inside. I'm broken inside. He hears those verbalized cries, but he also hears those moans and groans, the things that we can't even put into words. And he knows. He knows the pain. He knows the struggle deeper than anyone ever could, perhaps even deeper than we ever could. But God is not just the one who sees and hears and knows. God is the one who actually does something about it. God renews. But the crazy part that I'm trying to wrap my mind around is when I read this, the way in which God renews, it's strange. God renews us through our hoping in him. God renews us through our hoping in him. That's what it says in Isaiah 40. That through our hoping in him, God restores us. He makes us whole. He makes us complete. He makes us new. Well, what does that mean? Like, how do we hope? Well, it means waiting, trusting, believing, not giving up, holding fast to God when everything seems to be falling apart. But hoping is not just cognitive. It's not just what happens between your ears and your mind and the way that you conceptualize or think. It's not just emotive. It doesn't just take place in our heart based on our emotional impulses or our feelings. It's not just operative. It doesn't just take place with our hands and feet and the works that we could ever accomplish. It's all inclusive. It's cognitive, it's emotive, it's operative. It involves the entirety of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trusting, depending, and hoping in God. In the God who is the colossal creator, the God who is the writer of reason, the God who is the one who is worthy, God, who is the one and only incomparable king, the orderly overseer, the one who is intimately involved. And what a privilege it is to be able to hope in this God. God is incredible, and it is incredible that he is incredibly involved with us.
lime. A lime. Last week, a fig. The week before that, a kumquat. The week before that, a grape, a kidney bean. 27 weeks and five days to go. And I remember, I remember seeing the tiny heartbeat racing for the very first time. It felt like someone had vacuumed all the air from my lungs. I was stunned in silence, unable to say a word. And then I saw on the black and white TV screen our oxygen spontaneously becoming gold miracle. I saw what only God could create, and that's new life. So for some of you who don't understand what I'm trying to say, uh, I'll put it plainly. Tara and I are having uh, a baby. She's like, are you really gonna put my uterus on the screen? I didn't first service, but don't tell her I did that, all right? But I think about this. I think about how God creates new life, and that is incredible. But it's incredible in the way in which God creates new life right here, right now, with us. Yeah, it's a baby, a brand new baby coming into the world, and that's new life, and we hope for it. We await that. But so too in our lives, we are hoping and awaiting what God is going to do. And I believe that God wants to start some new life in this place today. Because God is the colossal creator, high and lofty above, and yet he's so involved in the little things of life. Like me and you and those around you. God is so intimately involved that he was willing to send his one and only son into our world to change us, transform us, and bring us back to him. To reconcile us with the creator of the universe, Jesus gave his life. Poured out his life, his entire self on the cross for our sin, our shame, our wrongdoing. And in that, hoping and trusting and faith, we can have new life. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you care, that you see and you hear and you know. And God, sometimes I wonder, why, why do we pray? It's because you're listening. It's because you're alive and active in our world, even when we are too distracted to see it. Father, I pray that if someone in here today wants to experience new life, new life, salvation, 
they would pray, Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin, my shame, for my wrongdoing. Would you come into my life, become my king, because you rose from the grave, defeating death once and for all. So Holy Spirit, guide me and strengthen me to hope in you, the God who is bigger than life itself. We love you and we praise you and all God's people said, amen.